Uh, it's not even National Pirate Day, so that's cool. Uh, look, his wife is leaving. Well done. It's, you have the gift of wisdom. We're grateful for that. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Mike Laurie, and I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at Warehouse. I'm grateful that we get to spend this time together. I'm glad um, that we get to gather corporately, that we get to um, think together and reason together and pray together and wrestle together uh, and hear uh, Wes Vanderlecht, our lead pastor, unpack um, the scriptures this morning together, that we get to sing together and share life together. I'm glad that we get to do all of that this morning, uh, and I'm grateful that you're here uh, with us as well. Uh, we are entering into a, a new series for the next eight, nine weeks called Unashamed, where we are going to uh, journey back in church history all the way back to the first century, all the way up to the modern uh, age. And we're going to look at key historical figures in church history uh, that were transformed by the good news of Jesus, the gospel, and how that is related to the specific New Testament book called uh, the Epistle to the Romans that Paul wrote, and how the gospel that's portrayed in Romans... Uh, transformed and impact their lives, which allowed them to be transformative and impacting on the world around them. I'm really excited as we get to unpack this question of what is the gospel and how does it change things. Speaking of transformation, if you um, were with us the last two weeks, we had this incredible opportunity to unpack vision for Warehouse for this next season. Uh, And we got to share our dreams, our our ideas, our thoughts, uh, our concerns. We got to share with you where we want to go, where we think that God is calling us um, not just dreams for the next couple of weeks, but just e- even like months and years out where we feel that God is putting on our heart as a local community. And if you weren't able to be with us the last two weeks or not, maybe you went to one but not the other, please take time this week to, uh, to go online and listen uh, to the sermons, listen to the messages, uh, because really what we are saying is that we are a church that wants to belong and to connect um, relationally and emotionally and spiritually that we trust that uh, God and Jesus and his spirit want to transform, reform our lives so we can go out and engage God's world and be transformative ourselves. Um, We asked people to sign up for things that they were interested in or places they wanted to connect, and over 130 requests came in about places and groups and people and things that people wanted to connect to, and that's awesome. Just yesterday, Saturday, for half a day, 30 of our brothers and sisters from Warehouse connected and gathered upstairs in the Blue Room on a marriage cultivation class because they recognized the necessity and the power of a strong and healthy and vibrant marriage. We're grateful for that. The men are going to gather at the end of the month for the men's retreat. Another incredible opportunity to laugh and play, but also to be challenged. And so, guys, if you're looking for a place to connect, please sign up. We have a couple more weeks to do that. But it's all over the board. We have people interested in, in kids' warehouse and in justice and community and technology and, and, and all and prayer and all kinds of places. And the invitation for you is that you have a chance to, uh, to, to, to connect as well. And so the invitation is open. So if you're interested in something, find me. Find uh, Nate Ledbetter. Find Wes. Find Steve in the back. Find Nicole. Find Bob if you're interested in, like, finance and numbers. Find, find somebody, and we will work hard to make it easy for you to connect here. And so we're, we're this, the theme of our series is called Unashamed. We're going to look at this passage in Romans 1 where Paul announces that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And Wes is going to do just a really, really great job of helping us unpack what that means. Let's just sit for a second. We're walking into a room today with all kinds of things stewing and stirring and percolating inside of us. Some of you are walking in with just a general sense of excitement that you um, and your relationship with uh, uh, your relationships are solid right now. Your relationship with God is really good right now. And that is worthy of celebration. And we want to encourage ourselves towards that. 
But some of us walk in the room and we're just, we're, there's just tension. There's tension relationally. There's tension socially and politically. There's tension globally and locally. There's tension spiritually in our relationship with God. For some of us, God seems really, really far away right now. And for some of us, we haven't heard or seen or tasted God in a long, long time. And we're wondering, we're lamenting, oh God, where are you now? And so as we begin this series, this fresh new series, this new season, this new day, I just want us to, just, I just want us to sit for a minute. So just go ahead and close your eyes for a second. I just want to sit. I want to be still for a second. And in the name of honesty and vulnerability, I just want you to answer the statement in your own heart, in your own mind. Be honest. Be vulnerable. God, this is how I feel about you right now. God, this is how I feel about you right now. Be it celebration or lament, here's my heart. And God, it is our prayer because of a resurrected Jesus and the power of the Spirit that is in this room that you would connect in and to and through and with us and that you would transform and reform us. That you would take our tears and move them to joy. That you would take distance and, 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 and exchange that for proximity. And that we would move from broken places to places of wholeness. We trust that, God, that your spirit can do that this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In our worship services, we participate in something called the lament. The lament is a, um, is a piece that we use. It's often music. It can be art. It can be other things. It can be questions. In particular, this morning, we're going to hear the band's going to lead through a song called God with a question mark uh, by a band called The Dodos, a song that came out in about 2008. And in this lament, the author the world, our world is crying out. There might be a God, but he seems safe and far away. But yet we're here on earth in toil and torment. And the lament is, oh God, where are you now? And so as we process through the lament, recognize that this isn't just the band song or this isn't just the dodo song. This is the cry of a broken world longing for hope. Perhaps you were going to relate to this um, in really profound ways this morning. But just remember, friends, this is not the end of the story. This is part of the story. It's not the end of the story. And Wes is going to get a chance to unpack the rest of the story. Thanks for being with us. It's a song that makes us long for good news, kind of good news that's on offer in a book like Romans. So that's what we're going to look at today. But I wonder, when you think about the Newer Testament book of Romans, what comes to your mind? Kind of image or thought? Perhaps if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're thinking about George Clooney, like in his Roman centurion garb in the Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar. It's an okay image to have in your mind, I guess. Um, If you are at all familiar, familiar with the Bible, though, I think perhaps the most common perception of Romans is that it is theologically thick. Like this is your meat and potatoes of the Bible. Uh, And that's true, and that can be intimidating, I think. 
I mean, I have advanced degrees in theology, and Romans, like, makes me sweat under the collar sometimes. Like, oh, this is uncomfortable. So it's, there's a lot of theology in Romans, but it's also incredibly practical. And there's an invitation in Romans, this, this presentation of a way of life that I think all of us want to experience, this life of joy and sacrificial service and meaning and hope. Overall, I think there is enough theology and practice in the book of Romans for us to, to chew on and digest for the rest of our lives. In fact, I, some preachers have tried, like D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous English preacher, preached through the book of Romans for 13 years. We're going to do it in nine weeks. <laughs> There's a lot here. And whether it's, it's your first time encountering Romans or you've come back to it again and again, um, my hope for these nine weeks is that this study, this exploration is going to instill in you a greater wonder over this thing called the gospel, this good news, and that you're going to be struck by its beauty, perhaps maybe even for the first time, and you're going to grow increasingly unashamed by what's being offered here. That's my prayer. And you know, pastors and writers throughout the centuries have tried to describe what Romans is, have stretched the limits of words as they've done so. Like the German reformer Martin Luther said that Romans is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word by word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. Or an English poet, literary critic Samuel Coleridge, he said Romans is the most profound work in existence. Swiss theologian Frederick Godet said it's the cathedral of the Christian faith. English pastor G. Campbell Morgan admitted that Romans is the most pessimistic page of literature upon which your eyes ever rested, and at the same time, the most optimistic poem to which your ears ever listened. And there's widespread agreement among those who know the New Testament, know the writings of Paul, which make up most of the New Testament, that this book is his masterpiece. Uh, this is like his, his magnum opus. It's all there. He lays it out. And so what is this book all about? Well, it's about Christianity. Uh, but more specifically, what is this about? And in a word, it's about the gospel. It's about this good news that is the, the source of Paul's calling and his passion to declare to the whole world uh, this truth. And it's a heartbeat of his life and his mission. But what is it? What is this? news that's so good. Well, let's read how Paul describes it at the beginning of the letter, just the first six verses of chapter one in Romans. Paul lays it out. So stand with me as I read this from Romans chapter one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. What is it? So the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among all the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is God's word to us. So right off the bat, we get some of that theological meat 
of Romans in this little preface, and we really learn three main things about what the gospel is, what the good news is. First, we learn that this gospel is a message about the fulfillment of God's plan, a plan that began the very beginning of history, the very first pages of the Bible as recorded there, and it's this plan that began the moment when Adam and Eve first sinned. And you can find the first little, little hint, the first little promise of the gospel right away in the Bible in Genesis 3. It's at the moment when, when God is cursing Satan for deceiving Eve. And he's laying this curse on him and he's saying, Satan, the woman's offspring will crush your head. You will strike his heel but the woman's offspring will crush your head. It's the first promise of the gospel. Right there, right off the bat in the beginning of the story. And, and that plan for bringing about salvation and liberation and crushing Satan's head, it took a long time to unfold. As the Bible shows us, this long story of God's work among his people. Uh, and he continued to remind them that this is his plan, this is his news, this is what's coming uh, through the prophets and, and it all points, though, to this moment in history when God is going to send his own son. God is going to come himself to do this work of salvation and liberation. And so as a whole, this Bible is telling this one big story of the good news of the gospel, and it's all pointing to Jesus. So that's the second thing we learn. Paul says the gospel is about Jesus. It's this good news about him, that Jesus is the one who crushes Satan's head. This is his work. He, he did that by becoming one of us, by taking on the curse of humanity, by letting it kill him, and by rising in power with victory over evil and sin and Satan. He crushes it. And he provides this way of experiencing new life and salvation and freedom, which comes to anyone through faith by God's grace. And that's the third element. And this is this would have been very striking for people in the first century that this gospel is not just for the Jews. It's for anyone and everyone who believes this news, who, who belongs, and who obeys the word of God through Christ. In the first century context, this was the major scandal of the gospel. Because up until this point in history, God had worked out his plan and his salvation through a particular group of people, the Hebrew people or the, or the Jewish people. And through them, his plan was to bless the world. But up until this time, it had been about uh, this group of people and their flourishing. But then through Jesus, it changes. Uh, it changes in the sense that this is now for everybody and anybody. And, and Paul himself, a Jew, was commissioned by Jesus to bring this message to anybody and everybody who would listen and receive this life that Jesus offers. Now, I think it's, it's just really hard for us to imagine how big of a deal this was in that context where this relationship with the Yahweh God was something that happened through the Jewish people. And, and so Jesus himself used parables to try to unleash people's imagination about this and to, uh, and to really get how big of a deal this really is. He said things like, um, the kingdom of God that's going out to anybody and everybody is like, um, you know, going out to the streets and inviting the homeless and, and anybody who wants to come to this big feast uh, that's really reserved for VIP people with advanced tickets. Like, that's what it's like, um, which would have been shocking in that social context. 
He said it's also like maybe going out and hiring somebody to work in the fields for the last hour of the day and paying them the exact same amount as somebody that you've hired at the beginning of the day. So those were some of the examples he made. I think in our context, to to try to illustrate how big of a deal uh, this is, you might say it's like um, telling Michigan fans to go over and give Ohio State fans one big hug and just be like, you know, it's just about being one big family, this football thing. Um, It seems ridiculous, right? It just doesn't seem fair. It seems like, well, don't destroy the distinctions that really matter here, you know? to our lives, Um, to which Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome, that's exactly it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculously awesome that God is going to unite all people, no matter their background, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their race, no matter their religious background, within this banner of the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says, as a Jew, I am not ashamed of that. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to save. He says that in Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, because that was God's plan, then to the Gentile. Now the plan expands. And, And for Paul to say explicitly, I'm not ashamed of that good news, I think is to imply that he had a real battle in and being ashamed, and that God actually helped him to overcome that. And I think to understand that, you have to get his background as a Jew, also as someone who used to persecute Christians. And I think it's helpful to see what he wrote about himself to the church in Philippi. He's talking about his background, and he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In other words, if there's anybody that should be ashamed of this precious salvation and news of God going out beyond the Jews, it should be me. But I'm not. Because here's why. He goes on to explain what happened. He says, but whatever were gains to me, all that stuff about being a Jew and God's special people, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss, like all my background, all my education, all my experience, all of my expertise, whatever, it's all loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them all garbage. In in the original language, it's a much more colorful word, uh, that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed because I know Jesus, and Jesus has set me free from all the stuff that I was tempted to put my worth in before that doesn't really matter. That's not going to get me anywhere with God. Jesus sets me free from those things, and so I'm not ashamed believing this. I'm not ashamed sharing this. I'm not ashamed living this out, no matter what it costs me personally. But it took a long time for Paul to get there, right? He had to encounter the risen Christ himself <laughs> to change his direction. He had to spend years in the Arabian desert, like, figuring this out and spending time with God before he was ready to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think ideally, all of us who follow Jesus would like to be there, and many of us who follow Jesus are not there. 
are not at a point where we can say confidently, I am not ashamed of what I believe and not ashamed to share that and and to live that out. I think it's easy for us to feel shame or embarrassment or just confusion about about what we believe and how we we do or don't live that out on a daily basis. Um, I just experienced this. I was at uh, at a conference in Vancouver for a couple days, flew back yesterday, and I was on a plane um, reading this book called More Theology and Less Heavy Cream. Uh, It's a really great book. But I was kind of like, I don't really, I don't really want my seatmates seeing that I'm reading this book called More Theology and Less Heavy Cream. So I, you know, I put the airline magazine over the cover, and like, you know, and I just, that's a little embarrassing that I'm reading a book <laughs> with that title. And, um, and this happens, I think, in little ways. I, I, in fact, I remember the first time that I was like fully embarrassed about what I believed or, or didn't believe. It was back in high school. Pequot Lakes, Minnesota, rural high school, public high school. And I was leading a small Bible study uh, for FCA, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And uh, the idea was to invite our friends and to talk about the Bible and God. And so it was great. One day, uh, one of my friends invited her friend, and she seemed really engaged, and, um, but then started looking really concerned. And um, at some point, just sort of interrupted, looked me straight in the eye. It was like, how in the world... Can you believe that God has some beautiful plan for the world, let alone my own life, when so much bleepity, bleepity, bleep stuff happens? And I was like, I blushed, and I, I muttered some things. I didn't know what to say. I was 16. You know, I was like, ah, that's a good point. I, I was just kind of, I was embarrassed. Like, I didn't know what to say, and... Um, didn't know what to do. And, and as a Jesus follower, I think that's a common feeling. I'm just going to own that for us. I think when you have certain doubts or questions or when all you know what to do in response to a hard question is to rattle off some cliches, like it's embarrassing sometimes. You feel a little ashamed about that. But one of the things I've realized along the way, this has been so good for me, is that following Jesus is, I mean, you, you can put all of the intellectual weight behind it that you can, and you'll never plumb its depths, but following Jesus is not about figuring everything out. It's not about having all your intellectual ducks in a row and having an answer to everything that people ask. In fact, sometimes the most humble, God-honoring thing you can say in response to someone who asks a tough question or even to yourself is, you know, I have no idea, but I would love to explore that with you. Uh, I would love to explore that for me. Um, And so, like, rather than feeling ashamed about having certain doubts or questions or not knowing how to respond, it's possible, like, you can be unashamed about your willingness to explore. And I think that's God-honoring, to say, "I I am unashamed to to explore that with you and to discover whatever truth God has for us along the way, because that's a really, really tough question. So let's do that. Um, So that's how I'd encourage you on that side of things. I think the other common reason to feel some shame or embarrassment about the gospel, about Jesus, uh, is the extent to which Christians have or haven't lived that out in their lives, in history, right now. I mean, you could ask, how could people really believe the good news of Jesus and be enslaving other human beings? How? 
That is ridiculously embarrassing and horrible. How could people believe this gospel and then abuse people under their care? How could people believe this gospel and be so closed-hearted to those on the margins, the poor and the immigrant, the prisoner and the, the homeless? And how? Like, it hurts my heart and makes me ashamed of us, of the church. How could I believe this gospel and have such a callous heart sometimes to my neighbors? What's encouraging to me when I ask those questions is that Paul felt the same way. He has this confession in Romans 7 just about himself and his experience. He says, I don't understand what I do. This is in Romans seven fifteen. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate to do, that's what I do. And, but here's the thing. Just be, if that's your experience, it does not mean the gospel is false. It just means God's not done with you and you need the gospel even more. You need to re- rely on God's free grace even more, which is exactly where Paul goes with this and this realization that God's grace in Christ covers us. He says just a few verses later, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is not about me. This is about Jesus the Christ. That's the good news. And so for Paul and for us, um, being unashamed is not like, I got all things figured out or, or the church is always doing what's right. Being unashamed about the gospel is about saying, I am weak and I am a sinner and Jesus is not. And Jesus provides me the salvation and the freedom and the reconciliation with God that I so long for. And I am not ashamed of that. And that's what I'm going to cling to. And when this is hard for us, I think it's really helpful to, um, for me at least, it's been helpful to look at how that message, that gospel has inspired people for thousands of years. Yes, the church has done uh, dark and ugly things, but the church has so many beautiful bright spots of God, this, this news of God transforming people's lives and inspiring their confidence to, to change the world. It's really quite remarkable. And, and so we're going to be exploring that through this series. Uh, I think this is the first time we've done any kind of church history stuff in a, in a consistent way since I've been here. And uh, I think it's worth answering because of that, like, why would we do this? You know, why look at history and not just the Bible itself? And it's important to say, well, that would be worthwhile, right, to just do a series straight through Romans and to study that. But I think uh, once in a while and, and perhaps more frequently than, than we normally do, it's so critical for us to see how uh, this good news has been transforming lives and making a difference for hundreds and thousands of years. And that can be incredibly encouraging and inspiring so there's that reason, and it just so happens at the end of this month, uh, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the European Reformation, which has influenced a lot of Christianity, uh, including this church. And so um, I can't think of a better time just to get a, be- a handle on where we've come from so we can understand where we are and then our future. Um, but just to summarize that, so why, why would we look at church history uh, now or any other time? Three main reasons. One, it gives us perspective. 
um, because we can tend to live in the tyranny of the present, but looking at the past helps us see, oh, we've been there before, and here's how people in the past have learned how to wrestle with this and how we can do that in the future. We get perspective. We get wisdom as well because there's nothing new under the sun. And, and if we think an issue that we're wrestling with today, like uh, sexual ethics, is new, it's not. There's nothing new about it. And the church has wrestled with this for thousands of years, and maybe there's some wisdom that we should draw on to learn what that means for us today. And we'll be doing that with the week on Augustine. Uh, so perspective, wisdom, and then just sheer inspiration and encouragement. I always say to people, if you feel stuck in your spiritual journey, read a good biography, which may sound like a really nerdy, you know, history major in college kind of thing to say. But I've experienced it really personally, which is why I recommend it. Uh, it really does do something to un, unstick you. Um, and for me, it's been incredibly inspiring as well. Like when I was just beginning to to discern my call into pastoral ministry, someone recommended that I read a biography of Charles Spurgeon, who's like one of the greatest preachers of all time in, in England. And at first I thought, oh great, I get to read, you know, a biography of someone who I can never be like. You know, that sounds really encouraging. Um, but then I started reading and I learned that, so not only did Spurgeon suffer physically from gout and rheumatism and Bright's disease, um, he endured this lifetime of public ridicule um, his wife collected this, like, bulging scrapbook of all of his criticism. Don't know why in the world, but, like, from all these newspapers and stuff. So there's a record of it, um, of all of his, his criticism, um, which is, like, con- this constant stream. And um, you would think as, like, one of the best preachers ever. He was a really good public speaker, and he was. But every, before, every time he spoke, he had this crippling fear that would make him vomit. Um, and on top of all of that, he struggled with debilitating depression. So I'm reading all of that, and I'm like, I think I can do this thing. <laughs> I, I, I think maybe I can get through this. Um, it's incredible. So over the next eight weeks, in addition to going through Romans, we're going to look at these little biographical snippets, and we're going to see how the gospel message inspired For example, Irenaeus is next week, inspired Irenaeus to stand up against those who wanted to make Jesus uh, less than fully divine and fully human. How this message moved Augustine to deny his urges in some very countercultural ways and devote his life to the church. How uh, Julian of Norwich was captured uh, by, uh, had this longing for revelation and was captured uh, by a vision from God. Um, how Martin Luther was emboldened to, to take a stand uh, against uh, abuses in the church and, and to move toward Reformation. How Karl Barth moved from being this sort of academic thinking person to one of the greatest church theologians ever because of the gospel. And how it motivated Mother Teresa to devote her life to the poor, convinced Martin Luther King Jr. to embrace nonconformity and nonviolence, inspired Billy Graham to share this message with the whole world, starting here in Charlotte. So we're going to look at these people and how in all these different ways, it was the same message that inspired them, same message that moved them to do amazing things and ordinary things. And I think we're going to learn a lot along the way. But this week, here's what I want you to do. Um, You might want to start reading about church history. Uh, We've got a book that I recommend that works you through 
all of church history, and it's called Church History in Plain Language. It's still a big book, but it's, it's a good place to start. Um, but you don't need to do that if you don't want. What I really want you to do is read through the book of Romans this week. Take like 15 minutes. Right? It's, a, it's a letter. So uh, find a quiet 15 minutes in your week. Sit in your favorite chair. Grab a real, you know, paper and ink Bible so you're not distracted by notifications. And just read straight through and let it wash over you. Maybe you're going to do that every day. That'd be awesome. Um, and as you do so, perhaps as you read, you're going to do a little bit of self-reflection. This is a good next step. Ask yourself, as I'm reading through Romans, is there anything in here that makes me feel ashamed or embarrassed or that rubs me the wrong way or that just seems far-fetched and that I don't understand? And just make a record of those things and, and maybe begin to ask, well, why is that? Why am I... Why do I have this reaction? Uh, be honest about that before God and maybe with some others. And my prayer is that over the next two months, as you're doing that reading, as you're doing that self-reflection, um, God's going to meet you in that space. Uh, the Spirit's going to strengthen you in those areas. And I believe you're going to be inspired uh, by the example of others that we look at in this series. So let's pray about that as we close. God, thank you for revealing yourself and your good news to us so graciously and so consistently and that we have a record of that now in the scriptures. And thank you for illuminating those to us by your spirit, for giving us this good news day in and day out, for pursuing us, for never letting us go. Um, so as we read and as we listen and engage over these next few weeks, I just ask you you would help us receive wholeheartedly whatever you have for us to be honest with how we're experiencing uh, this truth, uh, but then to receive what you have as well. Uh, whether we don't understand or we feel ashamed, help us be honest about that and, and to engage openly. And in that process, God, increase our wonder and our joy and um, move us to practice uh, what you have set out there for us, this lifestyle of, of sincere, hospitable, other-centered love that you have showed us yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so there is this thing, the gospel, the good news. And thank God for it. Because we are in need of something good. And this news isn't, it, it, it's more than good. It's perfect. And this good news transforms and reforms us. The good news saves us, makes broken things whole. The gospel is where God and his son and his spirit put everything back in its right place. And we need it. And we're desperate for it. And Jesus was so keenly aware of this. So keenly aware of our need to be made whole. Just before Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, on the eve of his arrest, he shared a really sacred holy meal with his friends, a meal that celebrated God's rescue, celebrated God's triumph, celebrated God's good news in a broken world. And while they were sharing that meal, he took bread that was a piece of the, of the meal, and he broke it, and he said, friends, this bread is like my body, and I break it for you, so you don't have to. 
This is good for you, so you don't have to. And so when you gather and you break this bread, remember what I've done for you. Because it's good. It's hopeful. And later in the meal, he took wine. And he poured wine and he said, friends, this wine is like my blood. And I, and I shed this blood. I pour this out for you because it's good. Because it's hopeful. You see, all the sacrifices of all the animals up through history, it was, it was okay. But Jesus is saying, my bloodshed is perfect. And it's good. And it's hopeful. And it saves. And so when you drink this wine, I want you to remember what I've done for you. I want you to remember the good news. And so here we are and we gather and we all come into this place with all kinds of tensions, all kinds of thoughts stirring and percolating in our head and we're wondering, is this meal for me? If you're a follower of Jesus, this meal is for you. A little bit how you can connect outside of Sunday though, in case you're wondering, uh, and particularly if you're a guest with us um, and, or weren't at the Two Vision Sundays, um, we had an opportunity for anyone and everyone to engage various levels of interest in all things warehouse. Um, you can still go to that website. I would love you to fill it out if you want to know about anything. It's warehouse242.org slash be the church. It's a great way to just let us know what do you want to know more about, how do you want to be involved, and we will respond and do whatever we can to make that happen for you. You can also go to the skinny. That's every week kind of what's coming up in the calendar. So let me mention a few things in that regard. Romans 11, it's a little over halfway through Romans, and Paul just like bursts out into worship and benediction because he can't help himself. Uh, that's what this is from Romans 11. So receive this as God's word too as you leave. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Yet for him, from him and through him and for him are all things. So to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in his grace.